The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spirituality and Health Magazine. I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Julie Peters, is the author of two books, Secrets of the Eternal Moon Phase Goddesses, Meditations on Desire, Relationships, and the Art of Being Broken, and the Canada Book Award-winning Want, Eight Steps to Recovering Desire, Passion, and Pleasure After Sexual Assault. Her essay, Decolonizing Therapy, appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Julie Peters, welcome to the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we have talked before when you we talked about moon phase goddesses. That was... We did. You know, the, <laughs> I was interested in the Decolonizing Therapy essay, even before I read it. I love the title, Decolonizing Therapy. And you open with what you call the cliched image of basically Freudian therapy that was popular in the mid 20th century. And I was, I mean, I was under the impression that this kind of therapy was discarded a long time ago. To what extent is it still the dominant form of therapeutic practice? That's a good question. I'm not sure how dominant it is, but it definitely still exists. There are people who do psychoanalytic therapy, I believe is the the term for it when you're doing the the classical Freudian technique. But I was thinking more of just the image of, you know, someone laying back on a couch. It's it's the image that you'll always see in cartoons and stuff like that whenever anyone is talking about the idea of therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that that is the the caricature our listeners don't necessarily know this but you are from canada you're canadian you live in canada do you have any idea if it's different in canada than in, in the united states therapy in general yeah or this psychotherapy you know the freudian stuff um Probably. I know that in Canada and the U.S., there are probably similar, you know, groups that gather together, you know, around creating licenses and things like that. I think a lot of the ethical rules and things like that are similar in the U.S. and Canada, but they're also different province to province. So I'm sure there are some variations there. But the experience of therapy, I mean, there's just so much of it out there. And right now I'm working as a body-based counselor, among other things. But because I I work online, I have a lot of clients from the U.S. and all over the place, like some other countries as well. And it's been one of the things that's been very interesting to me lately is the stories people come to me with about therapy, like their experiences of therapy. And, you know, I I have sort of a unique approach. It's very informed by my history 
in yoga and meditation and mindfulness. And I kind of came at it more from the, the body perspective. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not a Freudian therapist. I'm not coming at it from that very traditional perspective. But it's very interesting to me how often people have been really hurt by experiences of therapy where, you know, they haven't felt listened to, they haven't felt connected with, you know, there've been some very weird things that have happened in therapy. So, you know, just because you have a license in something, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that you have what someone is needing. And right, right. People can get licenses in almost anything. doesn't mean exactly. they're actually, they should be doing what they're, they have a license to do. Exactly. Yeah. And that that Freudian model is that the idea there is that you lay down to to kind of be relaxed and it's a stream of consciousness thing. So, you know, in that traditional form, which I think is it's still practiced, but I'm I'm sure it's sort of modified from what what Freud did initially. But, you know, the therapist doesn't really say much. They just sort of take notes and make judgments. And the the patient is talking the whole time. And I do know someone who who did this. It sounded quite interesting, but strange. Yeah. I, <laughs> so. I'm assuming I'm assuming you're lying down now, and I'm I'm actually <laughs> taking notes, listening for Freudian slips, so I can like yes. count. And, you know, <laughs> so you can what, tell me that my dreams. What did are you about mean by this? What, what are you really <laughs> yeah. saying, Julie? You know, this is about your mother. So yeah, I mean, I I agree with you that that I mean, I'm just going to quote you that many early therapeutic strategies were developed by privileged white men like Freud. I mean, that, that's right out of the article. There's no question about that. But, you know, what you didn't say, and maybe it's irrelevant to, to what you're writing about, but it's not irrelevant to me, is that maybe with the sole exception, I'm, and I might be exaggerating here, but maybe with the exception of Carl Jung, all these privileged guys were Jewish. Yeah. I mean, this was a Jewish movement that, that Freud created. He saw it that way. And, you know, you, you write that they were reinforcing the values of Victorian society. I'm not exactly sure about that, only because Victorian society rejected them as Jews. And I think a lot of what they were doing was trying to push back against Victorian society by revealing the underbelly of it. You know, Victorian society thought of itself as, you know, very disembodied and we're not about sex and we're, you know, it was a very repressive worldview and they were, or, or, you know, they had a very repressed understanding of themselves. And Freud and company was trying to show, no, you guys are really sick because you're, you know, you're, you're repressed in these areas and you're just that this is not healthy. And underneath you're living this wild, you know, fantasy life. Your unconscious is violating everything that you pretend to be on, on the, on the surface. So that, that just some things that would just spark to me by the article. And then this, this notion of colonization. So I'm reading the article and I'm thinking, here are these guys, these Jewish guys who had been colonized and dehumanized and in many cases brutalized by Christians for 2000 years. And I, and I don't know how, if this is true, but they were like fighting back these Freudians in, in some way by saying, you think you're better than us, but look, you're, you're nuts. Uh, but like you say in the article, their resistance, if that's what it was, gets co-opted. And then it gets put to use in, this is the way I'm going to put it. You can correct this if you, if you can find a better way to put it. But to further, let's say psychologically or sort of the, the psychological colonization of women and, and people of color. You know, that then it, it goes beyond this Jewish thing, put that aside, and it's used for some other kind of colonizing effort. 
Does that, does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Everything you just said, I, that's a perspective I, I wasn't thinking about so much. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of those early psychotherapists were Jewish. And I was thinking about some others as well, sort of going, going through, I guess, the 20th century who weren't necessarily Jewish, but that's a really good point. And you know, I'm thinking of this. So my perspective is as a woman and my background is Christian, not sort of deeply religious Christian, but sort of culturally Christian. And just to, to sort of add some context to that. And so, you know, my lens in learning about a lot of these things, especially through writing my book about recovering from sexual assault is sort of from a, a perspective of, of a woman. And one of the stories that really stuck out to me about Freud was, you know, he wrote this article or this essay about the origins of hysteria, which was, you know, at the time, hysteria meant a woman, usually, or I think exclusively, has some mysterious physical symptoms, and we can't really find like a physical cause for it. So it's something going on in their minds. And Freud's approach really helped women with hysteria, they a lot of their symptoms improved. And so he wrote this article sort of stating that the the reason all these women had hysteria was almost always because they had childhood sexual abuse, often from within their families. And, you know, what the way that you're talking about how Freud was kind of wanting to shake up the society a little bit and, and get them to realize that they were kind of living in this fantasy world and that they needed to kind of face what was actually going on is so perceptive, I think, about that moment. But what happened next was that because he was rejected by the society, they, they saw this article and they were like, no way, this, is, this can't be right, because that would mean that there's se- child sexual abuse happening in like many, many families in this part of the world that, of the, the women that he's, he's studying. And so we're going to reject him. You know, he's going to kind of lose his, his status in society. And so what he did was he retracted and he started saying that they were making it up. So this idea of like penis envy kind of came through the the way that you know the way i learned the story which was from a, a trauma lens was that freud was kind of through all of his listening to women which was sort of a brand new thing that anyone was doing at the time he discovered this truth but because it cost him his place in society he backtracked and he betrayed those women and he said oh they're just making it up it's just happening in their heads and it can't be real so that he could kind of continue on with his journey, which to me was like a very heartbreaking story, you know, about someone finally listening to women who'd been traumatized and then betraying them by saying that they'd they'd made it all up. But I hadn't really considered the sort of Jewish aspect of that, where he too was someone in society who was already a little bit on the outside and already vulnerable to some of the same things as those women. Yeah. I mean, you can see how, I'm not excusing it, certainly. I mean, he had this breakthrough. He saw the truth. And then he saw that the truth, rather than set himself free, the truth was going to cost him his place in society. Now, eventually he loses it anyway, because the society becomes, you know, Nazified and he's got to run for his life. But yeah, he, he, he shows the truth of his, of the Gentile culture in which he lives and then realizes, uh oh, <laughs> now I've revealed this truth about them. They're going to come and get me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so what do I do? So I go, oh no, I made it up. I made it up. No, don't don't come and get me. Yeah, you know, there's there's this notion of of colonization and then cultural appropriation that that comes through in the essay that is is very sad and maybe sad is much too soft a term. But, you know, I was I was you, you reference in the in the essay, Robin. I'm saying her name right, Kim Kimmerer. 
Am I pronouncing uh, I that right? I think that's how you say her name. Yeah, I'm not sure. And where she's talking about what she, what, uh, she calls the Christian tale of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. And just to keep this, this theme going for a little bit, I mean, that's a Jewish story. It's not a Christian story. The Christians appropriate it. Mm-hmm. But in their yeah. cultural appropriation, they turn it into a misogynist story, an anti-woman story. And they talk about, or, you know, you're quoting her in the essay, how Eve now has to, she compares it to a, an indigenous story where, you know, Eve is is at one with nature, but then in her retelling of it, Eve is has to earn her living with the, with the sweat of her brow, which in the story is what Adam does, not Eve. And in the story, only Adam, if you read the story closely, only Adam is exiled from the garden and not Eve. Eve mm-hmm. walks out. I mean, we don't know how she gets out of the garden, but it's not through exile. She just appears. The exile happens in Genesis chapter two, and she appears outside in the next chapter under her own accord. And Judaism has a whole long thing about why she chose to leave, but she chose to leave as opposed to to stay. But but my point is that this colonization of other peoples, whether it's Jews or indigenous peoples or, or you know whatever else it happens to be, by the European Christian culture, does damage across the board and often, not exclusively, but but I can't think of the word, but extensively, that's not the word I'm looking for, but but extensively, anyway, we'll go with that. At the expense of of women. It's it's they have this need, these men, obviously, they have this need to put down women, to, to be anti-women, because strong, independent women somehow threaten their worldview. And and you're saying, and this if as I read this, if I'm reading the essay properly, you're saying psychotherapy can be used as a tool in this oppression. So what's what if I'm right? What is the way out? Yeah. So, you know, the, a big piece of what I was trying to express in the article is this, this exactly everything you just explained. It's the, the colonization of the mind, right? And even the way you kind of describe, even the way I in the article was missing a certain Jewish perspective as I'm going through, like that's, you know, partly because we are in a culture that, you know, in my experience, at least is very Christian dominated in a lot of ways. And part of what that means is there are a lot of stories that don't get told or like, perspectives that don't get seen all the time. And one of the things that happens within therapy, and and I when I say therapy, there are so many different modalities out there, like so many different ways to approach this. And so even when I say traditional therapy, that doesn't necessarily mean Freud. It's just, you know, there are many approaches out there. But a lot of the time, you know, what those approaches are is narrative, right? So someone comes in, they're talking about their life, and the therapist is, you know, responding to that or offering sometimes advice or insights or questions or whatever it is the therapist is offering. And, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of experiencing, I guess, as I as I do what I do, which is a little bit different from that structure, is that the narratives that we have in our minds are necessarily influenced by the culture that we're in. There's the culture of our family, which includes our own religion, but there's also the culture of, you know, the community that we live in, the, the land that we live on, the country that we're in, the politics of that country, all of those things, the media that we consume, you know, that's all part of what we're influenced by. And so, you know, I think the warning here is that if the, the therapist or the counselor 
is not actively working to decolonize themselves in whatever ways they can, they will only ever be reinforcing whatever the dominant cultural narrative is, including if you think that therapy is apolitical, which is something I talk about a little bit in the article, this idea that, you know, we're here to talk about emotions and it has nothing to do with your identity, you know, as a woman or as a Jewish person or a trans person or whatever your identity is. Um, and so, you know, one of the the things that I think we need to be thinking about is the the, the cultural context of the person who's coming in to, to talk to us about whatever it is that's going on with them. And, you know, the problem that they're having sometimes is genuinely intimate, but, you know, more often than not, there is some resonance with what's going on in the culture and what we learned about our identities in, in the culture that we're in, you know, what it means to be a man, to be, you know, Christian, to be whatever it is. And that's an important place to gain insights on why we think the way we do and why we behave the way we do. And so I think, you know, that's one piece of the way out is noticing ourselves a product of our culture, but also when we bring awareness to that, we can start to think critically about, okay, these are the ideas I've gotten. These are the values of the community around me. How does that compare with the values of my religion? How does that compare with my family? How does that compare with like what that feels like in my body, sort of intimately within myself? And, you know, it's, it's sort of moving into a little bit of a different topic, but internal family systems is one example of a, a, a newer form of therapy that I think is a, a really cool example of, of one way to kind of decolonize is by a, acknowledging that there are different parts within ourselves that believe different things and have different experiences and different stories to tell. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was going to ask you about IFS because you mentioned it in the articles. I'm just going to use the initials. You can you can unpack it for us, the AEDP system. But hold hold off on that for a second. But the, the family system, we have all these aspects to ourselves. As a therapist, and I don't mean you personally, but just in general, as a therapist, can, can a therapist really be aware of her of her of her biases to the extent that she's not simply promoting another prepackaged ideal and and 
Yeah. And what would that be? Yeah. What if you were really free? Who would you be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, if I, if you were really free, who would you be? I mean, I think that's sort of impossible to answer because you're always going to be in relationship with your culture and your community and your family. And, you know, I think, I think one of the answers to that question about how a therapist can be truly aware of all of their biases, they can't, of course, it's impossible, you know, but being aware that we do have biases, I think is, is a really important place to start. And I think, you know, the, the concept of a therapist that, you know, I think a lot of people have, and certainly my first experience with, with therapy was very much like this. You come in as the client or the patient or whatever with all of your issues and things you want to talk about, and the therapist is kind of a nothing being. So the therapist just listens, and you don't learn anything about their personality, their lived experiences, anything like that. So my very first therapist, I was quite young, was, you know, if I tried to ask her, you know, anything about herself, she just wouldn't tell me anything, <laughs> which I found kind of weird and frustrating and hard to connect with her. I think a lot more of the more modern therapies are realizing that the connection, the genuine connection between the client and the therapist is like one of the most important sources of healing. But in that, I think, you know, we have to disclose our values. You know, I, I make sure people know, for example, that I'm a feminist, you know, I think it would be really hard to work with me if you had a problem with that. And I'm not going to, you know, try to counsel someone with my feminist agenda without sort of disclosing that that's something that's important to me and a part of who I am. And so, you know, for, for me, and I think for a lot of these, these more modern therapies, there is uh, some art to, you know, careful self-disclosure. And I think a really important part of that is disclosing your values and the ideas that inform why you might be having a certain reaction to what somebody is telling you or having a certain direction that you might want to help someone to go because you have to check in to make sure that your goals for somebody match their goals for themselves. And when you're talking with a client, the thing that you want to be doing is not in inserting your values into them, but helping them to figure out like what their values actually are. And how, for me, this is like my intentions as, as a counselor to, to help people live in integrity with, with their values and what's really true for them, not what I think they should do necessarily. Yeah. So the key is what you just said, I mean, true for them, or I was trying to think when you were talking about, you know, so, so what's the real goal? And I don't know, this is just what popped into my head. I want the client to be happy with who he or she is or who they are, as opposed to be what I think they should be. So, so if someone comes in and, and let's say the therapist is convinced that, that trans is wrong, morally in, in every way wrong, and yet the the client is wrestling with the, the, the notion of trans, you, I don't know if this is possible, but theoretically you would want the, the therapist to put all of the therapist's biases aside because the goal is to help the client come to terms with whatever the client's trying to come to terms with vis-a-vis -vis trans, right? You want the client to feel, to, to, become happy or to become at peace with whatever they're wrestling with. And, and the, but, but I think you're saying that's really not possible. So the, the alternative is, let me just tell you what my biases are and you can decide if my biases get in the way of what you're trying to do. And then you end up trying to find a therapist who's going to reinforce what you're trying to do, which either is 
could be good or it could be bad, depending on what you're trying to do. Does that, does that make any sense? I mean, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I think even that concept of, of wanting someone to be happy is an interesting position to come from. You know, I'm a, a relatively new parent. I have a young child and, you know, I was just sort of listening to some discussions about like the idea that my child should be happy. That's the thing that I'm always trying to, to make happen for my child and sort of putting this pressure on him to be happy at all costs. And, you know, what about those times when he's not happy, but that's still useful, you know, or interesting or meaningful for him. And that if he does something that allows him to learn for a while, but won't get him to happy really quickly, like, can I still have value in that? And so I think even, even considering a goal like that, you want to kind of pause and think like, okay, what is actually my big, my biggest goal for this person? And one of the things that is also coming to my mind as we're talking about this is the idea of true love, which is something I wrote about in, in my, my book about recovering from sexual assault. And I was kind of pulling from these different perspectives around it. But one of the, the definitions I've landed on, at least for now, is that true love is supporting the other person's uh, spiritual growth on their own terms. So not loving them because they play a role for you or loving them because they fit certain expectations for you, but loving them for who they are and supporting their growth spiritually. And, you know, it's, it's probably going to sound really weird for me to say that I'm kind of using the concept of love with, you know, the clients that I'm working with. But I would say that is my goal for them is their spiritual growth on their own terms. You know, whatever that means to them, wherever they're at in that moment is, so then, you know, encouraging their growth. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, difficult because okay so that sounds that sounds right and until i think to myself well what if their goals suck <laughs> what, if, <laughs> what if these people are are you know racists or fascists and you know and and do i want them to you know does does anyone ever stand up against their their goals because their goals are you know is there a standard against which one can measure one's goals and say, oh, wait, yeah, these are my goals and I got them from my parents or I got them from my religion or I got them from my society or, you know, some or somewhere else. But boy, these are not healthy goals. I mean, they may, yeah. they may, they may work for me in, in a closet, you know, locked in a box somewhere. But if I have to interact with people, my hatred of women, blacks, Muslims, Jews, whatever it is, that these are not healthy goals. So how how do you set a is there a standard or is it just what's good for you is what's good for you? Yeah, so I'll give you my opinion on that uh, for sure, but it's just an opinion. I mean, it's it's I'm sure other people will have different different ways of thinking about this. But, you know, I think in order to do the work I do, I have to hold a really specific belief, which is that so I, I kind of want to say People are fundamentally good, but it's that's not exactly what I mean by that. I believe that people fundamentally want connection and to be seen and heard for who they are. And that the reasons we don't are always related to self-protection or some kind of internal mechanism that is trying to help us maintain connection or trying to protect us from harm or trying to prevent us for getting, from getting into a situation where we might be harmed again. So if someone comes to me with a belief that is violent or harmful in some way, I mean, <clears throat> I should say sort of as a, as a caveat, that's also why we have supervisors. 
you know, we need people that we can debrief these things with so that we're not all our, on our own trying to figure out these sort of ethical quandaries when they come up. But, you know, if somebody has something going on with them where they have, you know, harmed someone in the past, let's say, I, I know that, that the reason that happened is because there was a part of them that was trying to protect them that they weren't necessarily consciously aware of. So this is one of the things I find so fascinating about internal family systems. And I was quoting uh, Richard Schwartz's recent book, No Bad Parts, in the article because I thought it was so incredibly beautiful. And it just brought up all these ideas for me around this, this topic of decolonizing therapy. And when he says no bad parts... Uh, just quick uh, concept of, of IFS is the idea that we have many different parts within us. We're very multiple and we can have parts that disagree with each other. So, you know, he talks about the mono mind, this idea that, you know, we have one mind and everything that's happening within us is connected to this one thing. And he kind of breaks that down and explains how, you know, it's not just the mono mind. It's not just the one thing. It's many, it's an ecosystem. It's many parts trying to interact and communicate with each other. And when, for example, trauma happens, the ecosystem is out of balance. And so, you know, therapy from an internal family systems perspective can help to bring those parts back into alignment with each other. And so, you know, he is amazing. He's worked with murderers and rapists and things like that. And um, even with them, he he believes that the parts of them that caused those harms were not fundamentally bad. And when he's able to offer compassion to those parts while also holding responsibility for, you know, past actions and talking about consequences and things like that. You know, he can see that often, you know, I think as, as many people may, may know, abusers are usually abused. Like it's, it's almost always that they were treated that way at some point in their past. And so there's some part of them that kind of learned that behavior as some sort of internal mechanism. So, you know, this to me is like quite heroic <laughs> what he's doing. I think that would be really hard to work with that extreme of a case but he really insists that, you know, there are no bad parts. That's He really means that. So, Julie, just give us his name and the book title again. His name is Richard Schwartz, and the, the book is called No Bad Parts. And okay. it's he's written books about internal family systems before he's the creator of it. But No Bad Parts, is he wrote it quite recently. And, you know, I'll say it's just beautifully written, among other things. It's a gorgeous read. All right. We are up against the clock, but I'm... It's a podcast, so we can go over and we really don't have to worry about it. I mentioned the accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy, the AEDP. It's a mouthful, yeah. Yeah, it's a mouthful to say. And I, I did mention it earlier. I don't want to leave the listener hanging. Can you give us a 30-second description of what that is and where they can learn more? Yes. So another beautiful book that really influenced the work I do is called It's Not Always Depression by Hilary Jacobs Hendel, who's a practitioner of AEDP. And the basic idea with AEDP is that we have core emotions, seven of them from this perspective. And so, you know, joy, I'll see if I can name all seven. So sadness, fear, anger, joy, excitement, sexual excitement, and disgust are the seven core emotions. And the idea is that each of these emotions is make up kind of an internal compass. So, you know, each of those emotions has a purpose and something specific that it's trying to teach us, usually about relationships, usually about something going on relationally. For example, fear wants us to run away from something. 
Disgust has noticed something toxic in the environment that would be poisonous if we received it. Joy wants to be shared and kind of jump up and down. Sadness wants to be held gently, ideally with another person. Anger, I talk about anger. I've I've written a lot about anger. I think about anger a lot because it's such a reviled emotion in our culture. But anger is really about power. It's, it's the part of us that protects our boundaries and identifies and tries to get our needs met. It's an emotion that wants change. And so when we can get beneath what Handel calls inhibitory emotions, which include guilt and anxiety, when we can get kind of beneath that, we can find the core emotion that's being suppressed because, you know, maybe it wasn't okay in childhood to express those emotions or there was no one to co-regulate with, which is an attachment theory thing. That's another sort of theory I'm bringing in here. And when we can get beneath that and find out what the core emotion is actually trying to communicate to us, it resolves that experience. And this is something that happens very viscerally, like in the body. And I've certainly found that to be true, that when we can kind of get to those core emotions and understand what they're saying, there's a shift that happens quite physically in in moving out of that and, and allowing that. So, you know, again, just to kind of go back to this idea of colonization, the, the way she experienced the Freudian technique is that it was a way to rationalize ourselves out of having emotions, to avoid having emotions, especially experiencing them in our bodies. So the techniques of Freud that she experienced through her parents were really about using that to avoid the emotion. So this is this kind of perspective of like, I want a thing, I'm going for it, and I'm going to destroy anything that's in my way, certainly including emotions. So when we open up space to let that emotion be exactly what it is, we're healing the ecosystem, which includes that internal compass of those core emotions that we need to be able to, you know, be happy if happiness is the goal we're going for, or be whole or be healed or, you know, whatever it is we're looking for. Okay. And that's the AEDP. Yeah, um, that's that's a lot of what I learned from her book, It's Not Always Depression, which is about AEDP. Okay, yeah. we are going to have to hold it there. <laughs> Our guest today, Julie Peters, has an essay called Decolonizing Therapy. It appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. She teaches live and recorded online yoga classes at her website, juliepeters.ca. And you can follow on Instagram at juliepeterswellness. Julie Peters, thank you so much for being with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you are not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.